HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cowgirl Creamery, makers of some of the best organic cheeses. Learn more at cowgirlcreamery.com. Have you ever wanted to open a restaurant, launch your own food brand, or dive into the ever-changing world of food media? Well, buckle up. Join us for Aspiration to Action, a special live podcast on Monday, June 3rd at Haven's Kitchen in Manhattan. Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott, hosts of Life's a Banquet, will lead us through tales of the good, the bad, and the transformative. Featuring Food World innovators and HRN hosts Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, Eli Sussman, host of The Line, along with his brother Max, and Allison Kane, host of In the Sauce, in conversation with Jenny Britton-Bauer. Light refreshments will be provided by Paris Gourmet, Wolfer Estate Vineyard, and To Honey. Get your tickets before they sell out by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash action. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through another little piece of culinary history. And community cookbooks are something that we all kind of know about. They're all familiar to us. You know, those old tattered and often spiral-bound collections where each contributor is credited. It began as a way for women to come together and share recipes and to support a common cause maybe or a local church or a school, a club, some other fundraising goal. It was a way to spread awareness and gain support for a cause often, reaching people who wouldn't have engaged with this cause otherwise, if not for buying a book of recipes. And the recipes ran the gamut from, you know, the usual Aunt Betty's chocolate pecan fudge submitted by Mrs. Robert Jones. (laughs) We'll talk about that. To the other extreme, uh, a little transparent in its message, which I found to my delight, which I'll read to you. It takes two grains of common sense in putting together the ingredients and eternal vigilance in cooking them from the moment of starting the process. Good recipes amount to nothing in the hands of an ignorant, negligent cook, man or woman. This is my best word for cooks, for housekeepers, for everybody. Sincerely yours, submitted by Susan B. Anthony. Well, we're going to talk about that, too. Uh, Whatever the goal was of these community cookbooks, and that, by the way, came from a community cookbook. Yes, indeed, for the cause of of, uh, suffrage, which Susan B. Anthony headed up there on that book. And whatever the goal was, the concept became so popular that it spread rapidly throughout the nation, so much so that more than 3,000 of these charity cookbooks were published, between approximately 1864 and 1922, according to Feeding America, the historic cookbook project of Michigan State University. Don Lindgren is an antiquarian bookseller specializing in printed and manuscript books on food and drink. And he became so interested in this genre that he has cataloged thousands of these books. He's with me today to share his insights into this movement, from recipe gathering and charitable funding to the breaking of gender limits. Don, along with his wife, Samantha, owns and runs Rabelais Fine Books, 
an antiquarian bookstore in Biddleford, Maine. Don and cataloger Mark Germer have written the first of several volumes to come yet of a catalog of community cookbooks. Quite impressive. And the book is called, the catalog is called Unexcelled. That's U N X L D. Unexcelled American Cookbooks of Community and Place. Welcome, Don. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. I'm really thrilled to be here. How did you, I mean, I've read a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, I've read a little bit of your, um, of your essay on how you first came in contact with community cookbooks, but what really captured you? How did you become interested in this genre of cookbook? Well, when I started, uh, when I moved my practice from being an antiquarian bookseller in other fields to focusing on food and drink, my, my interests were with uh, big chef books, uh, the big English tradition and French tradition, and some of the American books were interesting to me, but it didn't quite grab me as much. They seemed quite humble uh, in many ways, which uh, at the time maybe wasn't as exciting. As, uh, but there was a book that I, I saw a number of times. It was a book called Fish, Flesh, and Fowl that was produced by the ladies of the Second uh, Parish in Portland, Maine in 1877. And it's the first cookbook that was printed in Maine and, and compiled in Maine. Um, but it didn't really jump out to me at, at first, and so I, I sold it, and uh, a little while later, the exact same copy showed up at a book fair in the hands of a different bookseller, and I bought it back and started paying more attention to it. There was something about it that, that uh, I think in the interim, I had come to know more about the food of Maine and uh, the landscape and the ingredients and... So all of a sudden, this book had clues in it and all sorts of little things that, that, that were engaging to me where they weren't before. And at a certain point, I said, I'm going to start collecting these books and putting them aside because I like to see when books talk with each other. So that was the beginning of the collection of the community uh, community cookbooks for me. Wow. Well, what it, um, if you could tell us... Um talking about this genre of community cookbooks, what really designates a community cookbook from, let's say, another, some other earlier published um, small book of sure. recipes? Um, well, uh, people, I think people make a lot of assumptions about what it is, and that's because over the years there have been some really easy shorthands for what makes a community book. Um, and they also have lots of other names. People call them church cookbooks, fundraising cookbooks, charitable books and also things like those spiral-bound books. And the spiral-bound thing is probably the easiest shorthand. People think that community books are inherently bound with a metal wire spiral or with a plastic comb binding, uh, but that's only one portion of them. Over their time, they've, they've had lots of different forms. Uh-huh. The it's, not, it's, it's one that's been used by a variety of people, um, to a large extent by Margaret Cook in her, her very important work called America's Charitable Cooks, um, which is the bibliography of the of the topic, and by others like Jan Longoni and and, uh, and and others who've written on the topic on the topic, Megan Elias more recently. Um, and there are three components I look for, and that I think form the definition of community book. One is that the book is produced within or by a recognizable community. Uh, that might be a, a, a an auxiliary or other organization within a church. It might be uh, a, grain, you know, a, a group of people at a Grange Hall or an extension, people who are raising funds for a hospital or a library, but they have a specific community designation somehow. Um, the second uh, component I look for is that the recipes are compiled locally. I mean, they're drawn from local people. You mentioned that they're uh, that the, the, the contributors are named and they they most frequently are, not always, but most frequently are, and they're, they're named in a variety of ways, sometimes with their given names, sometimes with their married names, sometimes with just initials and the like. So it's that the, the recipes are coming from local sources. And the third element, and uh, this is the one that Margaret Cook really focused on in her book, but that the sale of the books raised funds for a charitable purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the charitable purpose isn't always stated, but um, a little research will reveal what that charitable purpose may be. Or like Susan B. Anthony's statement, it was a little transparent. You sort of knew. 
Oh yeah, that, you know that, where that, that interest book was. is a, a marvelous example of um, suffrage cookbook uh, with with contributions by Susan B. Anthony and others, and you know that had the the additional uh, 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 benefit of actually providing a model for lots of other suffrage organizations across the country to, to issue their own suffrage cookbooks. Yeah. Uh, well, tell me when you started to all right. So you started to compile a collection. You set them aside. Um, but collecting these books is a challenge in itself. I mean, you know, it's not something you just find on library shelves. Well, um, that's right. It's it's becoming it's it's very hard to find really rare materials out there in the wild. And by the wild, I mean by going to yard sales and flea markets and and general used bookshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the books I've compiled have been. Uh, in this collection, the collection's well over 2,500 books now, and that's that's wow. not because we take everything. I'm actually I have some really kind of strict rules about what I take and don't take for that collection. Um, many of them come from people who are private collectors who who you know compiled these books over many years back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and then they decided it was time to sell their collection, and I would buy a big grouping of things, which is nice. Um, sometimes. Collections of books by that they were assembled by by people over years were uh, came up at auction, and I would I would attempt to buy those as often as as I could. But also, I have a big network of of other dealers in lots of different fields all over the country, and they knew I was interested in this field, so they would keep an eye out, and I'd go to a book fair, and they'd say, "Hey, Don, we've got some things for you," and they'd pull out a little stack of these books that they had acquired uh, and they, you know, from all over the country. And uh, you never quite knew which books were going to come from what place, but they, hmm. they tended to come in little batches. It might be five <laughs> at a time or 50 at a time, but it's, uh, that's how I got them. Well, I think what's marvelous about, I've always loved um, community cookbooks as well. And, and I think what's marvelous about a lot of them is that they more so than, than, I mean, some of these, well, now there are a lot of regional cookbooks. So what I'm trying to say is, I guess they, they really tell you more about what the people of that community were cooking, what they really were eating and cooking, because it was a recipe that they decided to to submit. They figured people would be would want to know what this is. And I think that before we had any great regional cookbooks, <clears throat> this was an invaluable resource. Um, well, it's... It, uh, that that type of uh, expression of regional cooking is is interesting and and in a way somewhat complicated with the community books. The uh, the recipes themselves may come from within the community. In other words, they were supplied by you know, Mrs. Grant or or uh, or Mrs. Uh, anyway, they were supplied by by a particular member of the community. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the recipe comes from that place. Right. It does mean that it's very likely that it was used in that place. Right. And that's that's an important distinction, that people enjoyed this recipe enough that they would share it. Right. Um, and that leads to another bit of difficulty. If you were to look at the, across the community cookbooks broadly, um, you don't see a full representation of what people are eating in a place. You You see a somewhat aspirational... Uh, approach people want to show up. You know, they want to put their best foot forward. There's absolutely, a, there's a social absolutely. Yeah. Aspect to this, there tends to be a lot of celebratory food instead of ordinary food. Um, so you'll see more uh, pies and cakes and desserts, and occasionally some fancy, uh, some fancy savory dishes. Um, it's very rare you'll see a roast chicken. Or, for example, in Maine cookbooks, which I'm particularly interested in because it's where I live, you don't see the broad range of uh, seafood that they had available and that they were clearly eating. Hmm. Um, and that's because people knew how to cook these things and they didn't feel it was the kind of thing they might contribute to a book. Um, the, the community books reflect other cookbooks of the time, generally speaking, in that they they tend towards recipes that are aspirational, celebratory perhaps, and also things for which one needs more specific or more specificity in a recipe, something that's a little more formulaic that, was, that requires accuracy and mm-hmm. precision. So uh, preserving 
making, uh, candy making, those types of things require a type of precision that, uh, you know, roast green beans may not. Right, right. Well, when did these books first start to appear? Well, the, uh, there are two books that are generally referred to as the sort of landmark books, and these were both identified by Margaret Cook in her bibliography. Uh, the first is a book uh, published in Pennsylvania in 1864 by uh, Maria Moss, which is a single-author cookbook. It is not compiled from within a community. But the book has an ex- uh, uh, a somewhat vaguely expressed charitable intent. And so that's recognized currently as the earliest known charitable cookbook. But it doesn't come from a broader community, even if she may have compiled the recipes herself. It's a single author's name on the book. The first one where a community is identified and there's a charitable cause is a book called Nantucket Receipts of 1870. And that was actually intended to raise funds to build a hospital. Um, And so that's that's the book that, as far as we know so far, and new things do arise all the time, but that book has been recognized as the earliest known community cookbook for mm. quite a long time. Mm. Um, but there's something else I'd, I'd like to, to, to address briefly with this, which is sure. that in talking with people, once this first volume of the catalog uh, was issued, there were a couple of, of, of good collectors that I, I've, that I know and I've worked with over the years. And they'd write me a note, and they'd say, this is a really nice catalog, I like this, but I don't collect community cookbooks. It, you know, I just wanted to tell you it's a nice thing, but it's, you know, community cookbooks, I see those as a different thing, different category, and they are. And that's completely a legitimate type of uh, uh, decision for a collector. But there, one of the thing that's really, things that's really interesting about community books is that I think that what they became, they're sort of the full flowering of a, a, a latent tendency that's in many, I don't want to say all, but many of the early American cookbooks that preceded. And that's this identification of some form of community and some form of social or charitable purpose, which is what we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. And if you think back to Amelia Simmons' American Cookery, the, the first cookbook compiled and published in America um, of 1796, that book was you know, identified as being printed, uh, being uh, compiled by an orphan for the benefit of orphans. Mm-hmm. And so you have the identification of a community, that being this orphans broadly, and that word has a, a rather complicated meaning at the time, but that's it's an identified community of people in a specific type of condition, and it had the purpose of trying to provide some social uh, uh, uplift. And so there is a charitable cause and a community that's identified. And you can go through with other books. Um, uh, There's a great example, The Carolina Housewife of 1847, um, which has some sort of vague statements about, uh, about having a charitable purpose. And there's there's now material that demonstrates that it truly did have a charitable purpose, and that it was was intended to raise money. I actually saw a copy that had a manuscript annotation on the title page of the second edition that said that the first edition was to raise money for the mission. We don't know what the mission was yet, and that it the first edition uh, managed to raise five thousand dollars, which is a tremendous amount of money. Right, right. So well, there's this long. There is in built into American cookbooks, I believe, um, a tendency towards uh, um, an interest in social issues and the idea that these could raise money to alleviate some things, and also to, uh, 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 leaning towards ideas of community as well. Right, and they became—I mean, they became tried and true fundraisers. We know that for sure, and and lasted for quite some time. They're still being. Um, published by different Absolutely. organizations. No, yeah. they're totally being made today, yeah. and the, uh, they're, they're being made in uh, uh, some of the companies that started back in the 1920s and 30s to uh, print them are now very large companies. There's a company called Morris Printing in Kearney, Nebraska that's, that uh, 
claims on their website that they've printed millions of these books, huh. and I, I don't doubt that that's true. The um, you know it's an interesting indication of how effective that they they were in 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 terms of the speed of their spread. Right. So they you know they start out in 1870. Uh, by the end of the 1880s, there are about 250 of them. By 1900, 45 states and the District of Columbia have produced them. And by 1910, all 50 states in the District of Columbia have produced them. We're just talking about the U.S. here, but the, 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 the speed at which they spread geographically absolutely is an indication. Uh, I think it's interesting because people would buy them. They felt a connection to whatever group that was sponsoring it or, you know, an organization to want to buy them. Also, there weren't, I mean, the shelves, well, bookstores, forget bookstores and libraries. I mean, you know, there just were not that many cookbooks out there. I mean, today is, you know, is another story. But <clears throat> there were very few actual, um, you know, copyrighted, oh, and that's a topic, copyrighted, you know, b uh, bound cookbooks to buy and well there were there were there were more than you might expect um the by you know, well collections are, you know there i think by the by about 1900 there were probably about 800 titles that yeah. have been printed in america which well, is a lot but the but you know they weren't everywhere and they didn't reflect the, the the people in that local community the way these did um these really generated trust in a way, and I think that's really an, an, an interesting thing. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. These these other books were coming from big cities. They were they had largely big city interests. It doesn't, and there were plenty of community books produced in big cities as well. But when you think about the fact that these books were produced in every small town in America, pretty much, and often multiple books in single towns, because the town would have a grange and it would have three different. Uh, Christian denominations, and perhaps it had a synagogue and other things. So there would there would be lots of these things being produced in every small town, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's another that that localness uh, and specificity has another uh, manifestation that I think is really interesting, which is that most of them were printed and bound, so they were completely produced locally, and there are a couple things that are interesting about that. One is that. The fact that the women in the, these groups, they were, they were by and large, it, it was almost entirely women. Mm -hmm. There's some exceptions, and when you get later, then it, it, there are more exceptions. But um, they were restricted, depending on where they were and exactly when we're talking about, there were restrictions and complications in terms of what they could do, what type of uh, contracts they could enter into, what kind of financial arrangement they might be able to make with a printer, a binder, a distributor, um, and so they had to make they had to come up with workarounds to try to figure out how to how to deal with getting these things produced, given the fact that there were um, specific aspects of copyright law or or even the, the coverture laws that affected them as as married women, largely married mm -hmm. women, um, would affect their ability to to go out and hire someone to print. So they would enter into barter relationships using the advertising that appears in the books. And the advertising is, is there in order to, to fund the, the uh, publication of the books up front. It's like what we would do today in crowdfunding, if we right. had a, a GoFundMe campaign or mm -hmm. something. Um, they were uh, gathering at advertisements and able to pay, they were able to pay the printers and binders in advance and if they're lucky, they, they would then be able to have the book free and clear of, uh, of, uh, of um, any expense to, so that all the proceeds of selling the book could go to whatever their charitable cause might be. And what were some of the copyright issues? You mentioned that in your, uh, the introduction to your, the catalog, that there were copyright issues that they couldn't – well, you had mentioned it just earlier, too. Um, they basically had to have a male counterpart represent them to get – um, to get this this copyright, well, there's done a, on a book? there's a whole a whole history of um, of of copyright and uh, and gender that's very interesting and, and and perhaps too too complicated to kind of boil down, uh, especially since it was different in every state and at, at, at every moment. 
but the uh, coverture laws existed, and there were some coverture laws, uh, and these are the laws that governed married women, and basically treated married women as uh, that a, that a couple, the two people in a, in a marriage, were treated as a single person, and as a as an as an as one person, uh, and the one person legally was the male. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you sometimes see copyright slips put into books later, like it added in that said, you know, copyright filed by Mr. James Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, other states, women could copyright the things. There was also, for many of these groups, no interest in getting the book copyrighted because they were going to sell it locally. They didn't see any reason to follow the... Uh, uh, strictures of traditional publishing, and there are all sorts of there's all sorts of other evidence that they that they were well outside of traditional publishing. The title pages often have they appear in strange places in the book. Uh, the information that we would expect on a title page or on the publication page on the back of the title page is spread throughout the book in different places. Mm. Um, and perhaps the the one that that's most uh, uh, consternating to booksellers and librarians is that the title of the book on the title page and the title on the cover and what's called the running title, which is the title at the, the top of pages, might be three entirely different titles. <laughs> yeah, and I so they didn't see false. any reason why they had to have just one title. They could get as much information as they wanted on there. All right, all right. Well, and then, of course, um, people in the food writing and recipe writing world know about the difficulties in copywriting a recipe in the first place, but that wasn't even talked about then, I'm sure, in the earlier days. Uh, no, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have some other questions for you about the the progress of, of these books and, um, and the title of your book, and we'll talk about that when we come back after a short break, so stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Cowgirl Creamery, makers of some of the best organic cheeses. Founded by Sue Conley and Peggy Smith, Cowgirl Creamery has been awarded countless times for their products ranging from aged cheeses like Mount Tam, Red Hawk, and Wagon Wheel, to fresh cheeses like Fromage Blanc and Clabbered Cottage Cheese. For more information, head to cowgirlcreamery.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, we're back, and I am talking with Don Lindgren, an antiquarian bookseller, um, and collector of, we're talking about community cookbooks. And Don, there's no question but that, and you have even pointed it out in uh, the introduction of the catalog, that this whole genre you know, speaks loudly about uh, the empowerment of women and how being able to put together the do this, as you said, all created, um, recipes collected, everything put together, written, by women, and this was, you know, a new, a, a pretty new venture for a lot of them to go into business of such, even though the business was not for their own profit, but to to benefit a charity. Uh, and you said that this started to change a bit. What did you notice along the years when this um, was no longer only women? Well, the, it's, the changes I noticed work so much about the inclusion of men, and it, it's um, the changes came from a number of sources. The you know what was so striking at the very beginning was was how local these things were, how the they were compiled locally, they were printed locally, they were bound locally, they were distributed. The advertisers were all local businesses, um, and over time, what. I began to see and was uh, there were national advertisers appearing within the books. Mm-hmm. So there were large firms. This is you know this the the, the final quarter of the of the nineteenth century is the is the real rise of, of large scale industrial food. Um, 
And so these companies that were that were engaged in heavy advertising were all of a sudden recognizing that these were things, these were ways of getting their names into households. So they were reaching out to these groups to advertise within the book. Sometimes the entire book was prom- uh, promoted by a single advertiser. Yeah, and you so have that's one thing. Uh-huh. So you start to see this national uh, national level advertisers supporting the books. And so that's a that's a you know that's one step away from the localness. Um, the next step away from the localness occurred as, and this is another long complicated story, but you can you can imagine this because we see it every day with small local businesses disappearing and being pl- replaced by larger, bigger businesses that are elsewhere. As the local printer and binder disappeared. Um, you know, the idea that a tiny town or a small town like uh, uh, Biddeford, Maine, where my, my business is located, might actually have three different printing and two different binding operations serving a number of newspapers and, and uh, other, other printing needs. But sometime in the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, those places started closing. So the women no longer had the option of bartering with the local printer or binder to produce the book. And that created... A problem, and the problem was met by these big uh, specialized job printers in the Midwest. Uh, I mentioned one earlier, this Morris Printing in Kearney, Nebraska, um, that specialized in producing church cookbooks or, and other community cookbooks for fundraising purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another level of localness that is then removed from the books. In some cases, the, uh, in the with the modern books, you have a choice of producing all the artwork and all the all the recipes and sending it off to these guys. Others, you can just put your name on the book and they'll supply illustrations and recipes and everything, in which case there's very little that's local. So there's a whole shift, again, away from the specificity that we had with the earlier books. Right. Um, and originally, I, I intended to cut off the collection around World War II. And it was a somewhat arbitrary date, but it was based on the idea that this local shift, that, this, that things were moving too far away from the local to be of real interest to me. But over time, there's something else I noticed happening, which is that some portion of the groups went to these these big specialized printers, but others went entirely DIY. And by that, I mean that they adopted new technologies, like uh, they, they adopted... Um, um, Ditto machines and mimeograph machines for printing. That's what I was thinking, mimeograph, right? (laughs) And then later they they go to things like Xerox, and there are some other slightly more complicated technologies. And and with the printing, it's really cool because you think, okay, mimeograph is kind of a step back from the the sort of fancy uh, uh, linotype printing was producing most of the earlier books. But what it allowed them to do is illustrate their books directly. You know, before they had to hire an illustrator if there was going to be a picture of the church, and someone would actually engrave a plate, and that was another whole level of complication uh-huh. and remove. But now they could draw on the Mimeo or Ditto uh, sheets, and you know they could draw these simple things, but it was directly expressing what they were, you know, what they were doing. They took pictures of the dishes or pictures of people cooking. Um, sometimes a little cartoonish, but it was much more immediate in a way. Right. Um, and in terms of binding, they, you know, whatever was available. So there, there's a range of things from staples, uh, stapled uh, um, cloth. They use a lot of decorative oil cloth, which is the kind of stuff they would have used for tablecloths, you know, patterned oil cloths with flowers or checks or something. Um, other, they used wallpaper sometimes. Uh, they used ring bindings and post bindings and all sorts of binding technologies that are relatively obscure. And the, before I did cookbooks, I, I was in, in the field of artist books and, uh, and art books. And so I'm very attuned to people using unusual materials. And I have to say, with the exception of artist books, where people are going out of their way to, to find unusual technologies for printing and binding, I really think that community cookbooks Run the, the the have the broadest range of applications of printing and binding technologies that I've seen in any kind of book, hmm. in anything out there, and that's that is a testament to the creativity 
of these women that they could adapt and bring, you know, they could, they could just use all sorts of, of materials that they'd find. Um, I've, I've got books that were bound in linoleum samples. So they went to the flooring <laughs> store in the 1960s and they got a bunch of leftover linoleum samples and they had them cut to size and bound with a single ring. Um, so they were, they were incredibly uh, adaptive and creative in producing these books, which I think people often think of as kind of, you know, a little homespun and a little, a little must or fusty, but not creative. And yet I look at them and I'm seeing this like incredibly um, creative, adaptive group of people um, doing this stuff on their own. Well, certainly, you know, if a local group, they had to keep the cost down. They had to put it together however they could. And that was, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, <laughs> I guess you could say. You Absolutely. S- you said that you expanded your collection um, beyond World War II. And I see here, I'm, I'm looking through the the, um, the catalog. And by the way, it is it really is an incredible book. The catalog is unlike many because it is um, notated in in great detail. I mean, a lot of good history is given in it. Um, the background and where these places are, what, what, who is organizing these books, and it's it's a delight to read. And and pictures of all the covers of each of these books, as a you know cookbook, as a book catalog would have. But this just lends so much more uh, interest to you know to the information, to the historical information. But I do see you. that you have a couple in here from um, 1970s. Um, I think. It, as far as I can see. What is your oldest and rarest book in the collection, and what's your newest book? Can you, do you know? I mean, can you state well, that I'll, off I'll start with the I'll start with the newest because um, it's, it, it helps to explain uh, why. I mean, I, I, when I decided to, to include things that were after World War II, it was largely because they met one of two requirements. One was that they either had a, they, they had a, uh, a type of community or a type of charitable cause that I hadn't seen before. Mm. So there are some charitable causes that arise after World War II or even after the year 2000 that we didn't have previously or, ty- or, or ca- types of community groups. Such as? You know, well, the, um, uh, there's some books towards the end of the California listing which are, uh, which are anti-war and, and specifically anti-nuclear um, uh, fundraising books mm-hmm. uh, called Peace to Resistance is a pair of them mm-hmm. that were done in, in the very early 1960s in California. Um, and they have a, they're really attractively produced books with really interesting kind of 60s illustrations. And um, so they have a different, a different feel about them as well as having a different uh, uh, um, charitable purpose. Um, there are books in there uh, within the within the, the group that represent like inner city um, urban renewal organizations, and there's a there's also a California book in there. That's uh, it's also kind of a super glitzy book that was produced with this very high gloss high high gloss photographic illustrations, and the illustrations are all sort of like inner city, uh, you know, South Central LA graffiti and uh, uh, other scenes of of uh, of that community. So it's a, it's a different community. It's a physically, it's a book that has a physically different sensibility to it. Uh, and I'll give you one more good example. Cause it's, it's such a great example. Um, there's a book from Kentucky that was produced in the mid 1950s, which is a Braille cookbook. Mm. And it was produced by the Kentucky house for the blind and uh, Kentucky school, Kentucky school for the blind. Mm-hmm. And, I've handled a fair number of Braille cookbooks, but most of them are cookbooks that were produced by somebody else, and then then a, a Braille edition was produced. It's a type of transliteration. Uh, but this was a book where the recipes were produced by the House for the Blind in Kentucky, uh, the School for the Blind in Kentucky, and the intended audience uh, were were um, uh, unsighted uh, housewives across the country. So. Here you have a book that's a, a it's an unusual community, which is uh, uh, people who are not cited, and the charitable purpose is a, is very much a sort of social purpose, not a fundraising one. But uh, which goes back to that Amelia Simmons and the orphans thing. Right. But the where there's a 
they're trying to to, uh, to 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 give skill to people through this cookbook. And in addition to all of that, it's a very large book that's produced in Braille. So physically, it's an entirely different size and shape and sensibility than the the other books in the collection. And um, so, but you asked about the earliest. Yeah, the book. earliest cookbook. Well, I mean, I have a, I have copies of uh, of the the poetic cookbook. I don't have a copy of Nantucket Receipts right now. I've handled that book before, but uh-huh. I sold it a long time ago before I started this this specific project. So, I, I wish I had another one. But I did see in the catalog that you had um, one from 1870, the How to Keep a Husband, <laughs> or Culinary tactics. Um, yeah, that's the that's uh, is that the first is that the, the first California book? Uh, yeah, I think that yes, that's that starts out the California chapter. Yeah, yeah, that's and, a um, and that's a very rare book. Um, it, the the very early California books are uh, extremely desirable and and sought after and and very very scarce. Um, they're also books that are recognized in other collecting fields, which is not always the case in most states. Hmm. Um, California has a long and rich book collecting tradition. They have a number of different clubs, the Book Club of California, the Zamorano Club. These are all like famous book collecting groups, and they've produced lists of the most important California books. And a couple of these books have been on those lists, and that has helped drive you know, uh, um, interest in those books, which, of course, is part of what drives yeah. Well, you said that this was a very rare and very valuable, and I'm looking here in the catalog, and for those of you who are curious, this particular copy, How to Keep a Husband, uh, is listed at $5,500. So, indeed, it's a rare, that's a rare community cookbook, which... It is. You know, in the there be- aren't too many books in the, in the field that get into those numbers. Yeah, um, I'm looking at a lot of $500, three, you know, $300 and, listings. And, uh, and I have to say, the the uh, it's actually a field that if you if you put in the time to go out and collect, and to me, a, there's only two things you need to do to be a collector. One of them is, is to have a specific stated goal, and that means you've got to have parameters to what you're collecting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe you collect only the cookbooks of Wyoming, or could be anything at all. Um, and then the second thing is that you do the work, which is figure out how you're going to acquire them. And it could be going out and visiting bookstores. It could be, um, you know, being the bushes in, in all sorts of antique markets and flea markets, or it could be staying home and looking at things online. But, you know, just you can pursue those two things. You have a goal, a specific goal, and then you do the work of acquiring the things. And community cookbooks is a field where you really can put together not just a big collection, more importantly, an important collection of books um, that uh, nobody else has, has assembled. Right. And and that's when it becomes, something becomes important to researchers in the future and to, to libraries and the like. Hmm. Well, tell me about... I, I, the, the catalog is, is organized in an interesting way, too, um, and it's not um, by the year of the volume, but by state, which I think is, is very interesting. What was? Right. Tell it's, me about the decision on that. Well, it, it's organized by state overall, but within each state, it's organized by year. And the reason for that is that I I feel I felt strongly that the that it was I wanted people to be able to get a sense of the arc of these books over the course of a state's history or the or over the course of the community cookbook's life in that state. To get a sense of how different different places might be, and I think a good a good comparison in Volume One uh, is is Connecticut and California, mm-hmm. and uh, th- those are both states that there are quite a few books for. So you really kind of get a sense of of what's going on. And Connecticut is fairly consistent. Uh, you you tend to only have a couple of denominations. Um, the there are a lot of they produce many many books, but there's there's not a, a, a great deal of uh, of uh, ethnic variation. Um, I don't want to overstate it and make it sound like Connecticut's not not interesting. It's just it's fairly consistent. No, but there is, temper- there is a temperance. There is a temperance cookbook <laughs> from California. Yes, there is a from Connecticut. Yeah. There. And, right. and there's one of one of the early ones actually has a, the involvement of P.T. Barnum's wife, which I think is is a lot of fun. But um, 
uh, and, and there are lots of other books in Connecticut that are, that are fascinating and interesting. But there's a consistency to the books that come from Connecticut. If you go to, Los, uh, go to California and you see the influences of all different kinds of ethnicities, you get, uh, uh, you get these books that were, uh, some of which were produced by um, the sort of Anglo community, but you get the occurrence of um, Mexican-American or Southwestern food. Um, in the Bay Area in particular, you get uh, the occurrence of uh, uh, Japanese and Chinese cuisine mm-hmm. appears. Um, there's actually a book that didn't make it into the collection that I, I really wish had because it, it, it's, it was a, a, a Christian church, but it was a Japanese Christian church in the Bay Area. And it was filled with uh, a kind of a mixture of like half Japanese recipes and then half these very classic American things. Hmm. And that, that gives you a sense of, of what people who might be arriving in America or had been here for a generation or a generation and a half feel about what might be a national cuisine to them. They may not think, be thinking in terms of what's a national cuisine, but they're identifying these as books, as, as uh, uh, dishes to be cooking and eating. Yeah. In order to be to be American, right? right. Um, and then you get the you know the the inner city book, and you get the uh, books produced by the wives of prisoners at Alcatraz. I mean, there's like a really broad range of types of things in the California listing. Yeah, usually you think of community cookbooks, and you know the standards. You know, the every church guild had a you know community cookbook, uh, schools, um, junior league, uh, league of women voters, and all these all these usual groups that would put out the books year after year after year, or every few years. Um, but there were so many different ones, so many different organizations, so many different causes listed here. Just, very, just a fascinating read, it really is. Um, oh, thank you. And so I said we'll talk about the title. What tell, let's talk about the unexcelled and the un with the ex-excelled. Tell well, me that, about that. That is uh, the, the title and the and, and most of the... the uh, Printing on the cover of the catalog comes from a, a Connecticut cookbook mm. with the, with that exact title, Unexcelled. Um, and there's an image of it which we've used for the frontispiece so that people can see the. And it's got the advertising the and has the advertising, as you said. They they yeah, they've got it, advertising yeah. right on the cover. It's the Unexcelled cookbook by, published by the ladies of the First Emmy Church, um, and uh, and it's uh, twenty five cents in, Der- in Derby, Connecticut, is where it's. It's been issued. Hmm. Very um, interesting. And it, it's it's one. Of the, I, I'm I'm not 100% sure about this yet, but there definitely is a fascination with initials um, and you know, with acronyms uh, by by these groups generally. You know, that a lot of it's because they they had initials for lots of things. WMS is the Women's Mission Society, and the YPSCE is the Young Persons Society for Christian Education. Or I mean, the, the, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, WCTU, and there's the YWCA that comes along. Mm-hmm. So there's there's, there's a lot of sort of there's a sort of embracing of of what seems to me to be sort of early technocracy. It's like a <laughs> um, it's a it's a, it's a it's a little way of grasping officialness. Yeah, and yeah. and I think that that's part of what they were doing with is playing with that when they use this unexcelled name and they're they're they superlatives show up a lot they like they like superlatives well it is an attention it's an attention getter for sure <laughs> it is well, with each of the successive volumes we're we're going to be the title is going to stay the same unexcelled uh-huh. will stick with the whole thing but each one will be drawing from an actual cover. Um, of an, of another book that has a slightly different it has a a different type of form. Oh, excellent, excellent. I, th- I mean, these books are. I, it's really an incomparable collection of a, kind of a piece of female Americana, if you will. I mean, food. Yeah, it was. It's recipes, good food, food that women were actually cooking. But more than just a collection. I mean, these were, you know, fundraisers, political pamphlets early feminist movements, social justice, a real historical account of, of the communities that they came from. And if you read between the lines, kind of, if you kind of, you know, spend time with them, you really have to spend time with them and, and look at them. And, and I just think it's a fascinating collection, and I, and I think this catalog is 
wonderful reading and fascinating as well. And I look forward to how many more? <laughs> well, it's 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 uh, it's going to be at least five, which I, I now now I can say that with without being too scared for the rest of my life uh, having to complete this because we finished uh, cataloging through uh, Maryland at this point. Uh, so that's pretty much to the end of, or close to the end of Volume 3. So at this point, we're writing the introductory essay for Volume 2 and then the introductory essay for Volume 3, and then we'll be halfway done. Wonderful. Um, and I, I should stop and say we. I mean, you, were, you, you mentioned at the beginning Mark Germer, who's yes. my co-author on this. And Mark, Mark has been a cataloger who's worked with me for a while. He's a, a, a retired librarian and a, a, a really, really... Uh, Terrific researcher, and I—I I really have to say he is my sole co-author on this project. He—he's—he's uh, really pushed for inclusion of more of the sort of uh, church organizational history stuff than mm-hmm. I may have put in originally, but now I think is completely essential. Um, and uh, and he's really you know he's he's helped to mold these this this project into a uh, a, a more a more serious academic uh, project than it than it may have been otherwise. So I'm, I'm very well, grateful for his involvement. Well, it's excellent, and I um, I do have a photo of the cover that I will post on our um, on the show page so that people Super. can see it and they'll know where to get it. And I thank you and look forward to so many more. And again, the book is the catalog is called Unexcelled: American Cookbooks of Community and Place, Volume One. It goes from Alabama to the District of Columbia. Don Lindgren and Mark Germer are the authors. And the publisher is... The new publisher of this book is... Well, it's, 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 self-published. Uh, it's self-published. It's published self-published. by Rabelais Inc., which is... So that's your... Shop. Oh, and, that's uh, you. And that's Rabelais... That's, that's, that's your yeah. books. That's your book company. That's your yeah. company. Well, that's excellent. So if they go to um, Rabelais... Our website, which is rabelaisbooks.com, uh, okay. there is a link to the catalog right on the front page, and they can uh, they can either purchase a printed copy by going to that link, mm-hmm. or if they go to the catalog on the top bar as a catalog link, they can actually read a PDF as the entire thing is available with mm-hmm. no, at no charge. I just think it's a great history read too, and you never know there might be a book you want to buy. <laughs> so, Sorry. thanks so much for spending time with me today, Don. Oh, thank this was, you, Linda. This was really, great fun. Very, very, very interesting. And thank you for listening. Again, this has been another Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.